Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's, and today's program is a partnership between the Leukemia Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And it's really um, a pleasure uh, for us to be working with them today on this program. And today's program is titled Adults Living with Acute Lymphocytic Leukemia or ALL Treatment Updates. And today's pr program is supported by Takeda Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have a lot of you on the call today. Um, this is a rare uh, cancer, rare uh, leukemia, and we have uh, 175 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And today's program is supported by Takeda Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Malise Luskin, and Dr. Luskin is Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Luskin will be addressing an overview of acute lymphocytic lymphoblastic leukemia in adults, current standard of care, therapy for relapsed refractory ALL, and new treatment approaches and targeted therapy. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Luskin. Well, thank you, Dr. Messner, for that really uh, kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, as mentioned, my name is Dr. Marlies Luskin, and I'm a leukemia physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and it's really a great uh, privilege to be able to speak about this topic, um, which I'm really passionate about, and it's my favorite audience, which is pay, uh, patients and their loved ones, uh, caregivers, friends, and family. Because um, really my goal is to help you feel comfortable with this diagnosis and understand uh, treatment options that are out there, treatment options that are out there, and, and, and most importantly, get excited about the improvements that we're seeing. Uh, you know, really every year, uh, there's a lot of hope in this field. So, um, a, a tall order for a few minutes, but I, I will give you an overview of the diagnosis, my approach to treatment, and then I'll uh, hand uh, the, the call off to my my colleague who'll be introduced. So. The term, first of all, is often very confusing to patients, this term ALL, or acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and then sometimes this word lymphoblastic lymphoma gets mentioned. So what is this diagnosis? This is a cancer in the blood cancer family. It's a cancer of what's called uh, lymphocytes. Uh, the cancer cells are immature, uh, abnormal lymphocytes that are, are unable to mature, and these are called lymphoblasts. In most cases, uh, the disease involves the bone marrow, uh, where uh, inside all the bones of our bodies where blood is made. And usually this cancer infiltrates the bone marrow and, in, uh, and often spills out into the bloodstream where the uh, products of the bone marrow uh, are usually sent. In this case, it's the, more, it's the most typical case of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. 
In some cases of ALL, the cancer cells, the lymphoblast, will collect outside the bone marrow and blood and go to lymph nodes or sometimes the chest area, the, the, uh, the front of the chest called the mediastinum. And in those cases, the cancer is called a lymphoblastic lymphoma. So in terms of terminology, this is a cancer of lymphoblast. Acute means that often in most patients develops very quickly. Uh, symptoms uh, occur and then lead to a diagnosis within a couple of days to a couple of weeks. And the term leukemia and lymphoma really is really based on where the disease presents, whether it's in the blood or in uh, the lymph nodes outside the, outside the bloodstream. Either way, in most cases, we treat ALL and, and LBL, lymphoblastic lymphoma, uh, in a similar way. Um, this is a cancer that is treated with chemotherapy with medicine because it's a systemic disease. I usually would tell my patients, you either have it or you don't have it. And so um, we don't stage it one, two, three, four, like we do a cancer um, in, an, or in, we call a solid organ. Uh, the bloodstream is everywhere in the body. You either have it or you don't. And similarly, because it's everywhere in the body, we can't cut it out. We can't do surgery. We can't do radiation. We can't radiate the whole body. So we approach treatment with different medications, which we collectively refer to as chemotherapy, which is what subject of the rest of my uh, talk will be. And our job is to administer the right chemotherapies at the right time to get the very best outcome for the patient. Uh, ALL is a cancer that can occur at any age. Uh, this is a, a uh, this teleconference is for ALL in adults. And in fact, many adults say, what? I didn't know that this was a disease that could happen in adults. I always heard about this as a cancer of children. And in fact, half, about half of diagnoses of ALL occur in children or young adults. Uh, which is a particular focus that we'll uh, move on to in a few moments, but half of cases actually occur in adults. Uh, but it's a relatively rare uh, disease, which is why it's so important to have education sessions like this. So relatively rare diagnosis is a few thousand cases in the United States each year. Um, and in most cases, it's, it's uh, so-called de novo, I mean, it comes out of the blue. There's nothing a person uh, could have done to prevent it. It's not uh, a cancer that we think of uh, being prevented by lifestyle or um, having eaten more vegetables or worn sunscreen or had less stress or more sleep. This is de novo. We don't, in most cases, have an, a, a reason or an understanding about why ALL or LBL developed in any one particular person. Certainly, there is a little bit of an age uh, correlation, so there is a peak uh, incidence uh, in the older ages, just like in the younger ages. And we are increasingly recognizing that there are some cases that we call therapy-related ALL or individuals who have gotten chemotherapy for another uh, diagnosis. But in most cases, this is a diagnosis that comes out of the blue. Symptoms are often general. Patients feel a little bit unwell. They have flu-like symptoms or symptoms of low blood counts, low amounts of good cells, so anemia, shortness of breath, infections, bruising. But something brings them to the doctor. They get a blood count. They get an analysis of their blood, and often, uh, usually, cases of bone marrow biopsy. Those samples are analyzed by their pathologist, and they are given this diagnosis. And after all that introduction, the most important thing to a patient is, you know, what are we going to do about this? What is the standard of care? What treatment should I get? Um, and, you know, how is my doctor going to help me? So uh, when uh, a person with a diagnosis of ALL meets a, a leukemia specialist or an oncology specialist, um, that uh, treating doctor needs, a f needs some information in order to make the uh, uh, treatment plan. So when I approach a patient, I always tell them we have to think about treatment in two phases. Our first goal is to offer treatment uh, to chemotherapy treatment. 
some collection of medications or chemotherapy to get that cancer into remission. Remission means I can't see the cancer. That means I've shrunk down the cancer in the body to such a low level that the blood system starts working normally and the patient feels well. Their blood counts look normal. The samples of their bone marrow look normal. They're in remission. Remission, however, does not equal cure. Remission means that uh, chemotherapy has shrunk that chemo down to a really low level. From remission, patient needs more treatment, something called consolidation treatment or post-remission treatment. And the goal of that treatment is to eradicate the leukemia cells that are still hiding in the body so that there is none left and none can uh, grow back and cause relapse. And so it's really important that the uh, leukemia physician, in, in collaboration with their patient, um, uh, get the right information to devise the best uh, induction regimen with the goal of getting into remission, and then the, the best consolidation approach in order to keep that leukemia from ever coming back. The leukemia that doesn't come back is cured, and that's obviously our goal for, for all of our patients um, as, we, uh, as we take care of them. So factors that go into that first part of treatment, uh, things I, I, I are most important to me, what is the age of the patient, what medical problems do they have, and then what subtype of ILL do they have. Major subtype, something uh, that we often think about is whether or not their, uh, their ALL is something called a B-cell ALL. Are there lymphoblasts, their cancer cells, expressing markers that look like a B-cell, a normal type of um, immune cell? Or is it something called T-cell ALL, and their cancer resembles um, a, a, what's called a T-lymphocyte? So we want to know if their cancer is a B or a T. And then within B-cell ALL, there are two major divisions in treatment whether or not the patient has, uh, whether their cancer has a particular genetic abnormality, and by this I don't mean an inherited genetic abnormality, but a, um, what went broken, what caused the cancer, whether or not they have something called the Philadelphia chromosome. It's called that because the, some folks in Philadelphia were instrumental in understanding or uh, uh, determining this, uh, identifying this subtype. But the Philadelphia chromosome is a particular genetic rearrangement between two chromosomes, 9 and 22. And it's relevant because we now have a particular targeted therapy that uh, can help treat patients with Philadelphia chromosome ALL. That information is provided to your doctor by uh, analysis of the samples that would have been collected on the blood or the bone marrow in the process of being evaluated. And with that information, the doctor will figure out, okay, uh, you know, what treatment should I give? So in general, for somebody who has Philadelphia chromosome ALL, ALL they're going to get treated with um, steroids which uh, is very effective at treating uh, ALL, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is that targeted medicine that targets that Philadelphia chromosome. And then depending on the approach um, that the physician uh, chooses for the patient, that may or may not be, that may be just those two agents alone uh, to get into remission, or uh, the steroids in that tyrosine kinase inhibitor or the ABLE kinase inhibitor, that targeted therapy, might be combined with more conventional chemotherapy drugs, or uh, particularly in the context of clinical trials, maybe uh, combined with a, a novel uh, immunotherapy agent, which I'll talk about in a second. If a patient has Philadelphia chromosome negative, they don't have that abnormality that's able to be targeted. They're going to be um, uh, offered chemotherapy, a combination of chemotherapy that is going to be um, um, uh, based on the age of the patient. So. Certain age groups uh, tolerate different uh, chemotherapies, uh, and so we want to tailor the intensity of the chemotherapy to what the patient is likely to, to, to do well with. We want to 
offer the most aggressive approach possible, but not so aggressive that we end up harming the patient in the process of treating them. And so we, we have a sense based on the patient's age, but also integrating their um, uh, other medical problems and other factors, we tailor the intensity of treatment. So uh, th those are the factors that um, go into uh, choosing that induction regimen. And then once that patient gets into remission, and, and fortunately uh, with the right approaches that I just described, we get the majority of patients into remission. Then we move on to that consolidation. And that consolidation, can, uh, if it's a Philadelphia chromosome positive patient, will include more of that targeted therapy. And then in either case, may or may not include chemotherapy, novel agents, which I'll talk about in a moment, or uh, bone marrow transplant or allogeneic stem cell transplant. Bone marrow transplant is the most aggressive way to, 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 to treat uh, leukemia, but also, but also is a complicated procedure and has its own set of risks and benefits. And so we reserve that for patients that we think are unlikely to be cured with our uh, non-transplant modalities. And we determine that need for transplant based on the patient's age, need and eligibility based on their age, their genetic uh, background. That Philadelphia chromosome I mentioned is an important factor for the first treatment but there's a myriad of other genetic abnormalities that may be present in the leukemia diagnosis that help us predict um, whether or not our treatments will work. And then also we watch how patients are responding, something called our um, MRD or minimal residual disease response, which involves using fancy tests for the blood and bone marrow uh, to determine whether or not that, that leukemia has responded really well to chemotherapy. If it responds really well to the chemotherapy, we might not need transplant. If it doesn't respond so well and there's a little bit of this minimal residual disease left or measurable residual disease, measurable residual disease we are uh, going to be thinking about escalating treatment to transplant. So briefly, because I've already talked for uh, a few minutes, I wanted to mention um, treatment for relapse ALL and also um, uh, the connection between treatment for relapse ALL and, um, and what's new in um, uh, initial treatment of ALL. What's really exciting in ALL is that in the last few years, we've had two approvals for uh, relapse VALL, something called inotuzumab, I-N-O-T-U-Z-U-M-A-B, which is an antibody drug conjugate that targets the marker CD22 on the cervix of lymphoblast. And it's basically, I call the smart dart, smart dart. It brings a little bit of chemotherapy that's at the end of that antibody to the cancer cells. And that's been shown to be better than conventional chemotherapy for individuals who need an additional therapy if their chemotherapy, if their disease has not responded well to initial treatment or come back after initial treatment. The other uh, approval um, uh, medication is something called blinatumumab, B-L-I-N-A-T-U-M-O-M-A-B. This is a bi-specific antibody, so an antibody that has two ends one that goes after CD19, a marker on B-cell ALL, and the other is a mar uh, uh, target CD3, which is a marker on T-cell. And blinatumumab uh, is a, uh, a way to, uh, when it gets infused in the patient, it's given as a continuous infusion, helps um, bring the patient's own T-cells to the B-cell ALL and uh, target them. There's different uh, side effects um, and particular uh, risks for each of those drugs. Uh, but uh, the, uh, both of these are options for the treatment of uh, BALL that's come back uh, or not responded to initial treatment approaches. And it's great to have these really effective uh, options for patients from the, for whose leukemia has come back. 
what is being uh, investigated now for frontline treatment, which I reviewed the standard approach a few minutes ago, is given that these agents are so effective for leukemia that's come back after um, uh, a treatment that's not as successful as we hope at the beginning, um, the current clinical trials are looking at integrating those drugs into first-line treatment in different phases, both that induction phase and in the uh, consolidation phase. So for somebody who's got a new diagnosis, one thing to ask their physician is whether or not there are any clinical trials available at their center or nearby centers looking at those approaches of, of offering those um, new drugs earlier in the treatment course. Another um, mention is something called uh, CAR T-cell therapy, uh, uh, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. This has gotten a lot of press. Um, it's a very exciting treatment modality where patients' own T-cells are removed from the body and re-engineered to be able to fight uh, the BALL. And there's now two different CAR T-cell products approved, one for uh, uh, children and young adults and one for, uh, for adults. And this is also an option for patients with leukemia who's uh, not responded to uh, our conventional approaches. And that's a really exciting new development as those, uh, particularly the uh, CAR T-cell product uh, for, um, uh, for adults was really just approved uh, within the last year or so. So lots new happening in ALL. Um, we are, uh, those of us in the field are really excited to be here now because we have so many options and we have so many new things to, 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 uh, to improve upon and, and tools in our toolkit. Uh, we're really in, the, in an optimization phase. Um, I don't have time to go through all the new options, but there are other clinical trials looking at uh, other drugs, um, looking at new immunotherapy drugs, looking at a drug called Venetoclax, or V-E-N-E-T-O-C-L-A-X which is approved for uh, a related leukemia and related lymphomas. So we're really excited about uh, treatment options for this disease. Um, the, the final thing I'll, I'll say is that this is a rare disease um, and there's a lot of nuance and uh, really it's important to be seen by an experienced center um, uh, where uh, you can get the latest standard of care. I will close there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Luskin. That was a, a remarkably, just a wonderful presentation. Um, stellar, and actually, you really set the stage for today's program, so I want to thank you so much, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so th thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Adam, Adam Duval, and Dr. Duval is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Oncology, Young Adult Cancer Program, UChicago Medicine. And Dr. Duval will be addressing young adults living with acute lymphocytic lymphoblastic leukemia, clinical trial updates, how research contributes to your treatment options, managing complications and side effects of ALL and its treatment, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Duval. Thanks so much, Dr. Messner, and, and thanks to Dr. Luskin for really doing a remarkable job at introducing a complex topic and doing it quickly and efficiently. So I will benefit from her uh, description and kind of just jump right in and speaking about ALL, um, specifically in a population that we call adolescents <coughs> excuse me, and young adults. So <coughs> adolescents and young adults are defined a little bit differently depending on where you exist in the world. In the United States, which is what I'll talk about specifically, our National Cancer Institute um, has defined the young, adolescent and young adult population, or I'll call AYA population, to be 
ages 15 to 40. And that's important for ALL because this is a, a period where you have a unique types of ALL that kind of appear. And it's also a period where there's a lot of ALL. It's one of the more common cancers in young people, even though cancer isn't particularly common in young people. And so work that has been done over the last, you know, um, decade or so has, has really shown that um, the, the treatment of AYAs with ALL um, is, is preferred to be based on pediatric um, treatment approaches. So there are, um, you know, a, a while back, you know, adult, adult doctors and pediatric doctors kind of treated ALL slightly differently. Um, but as Dr. Luskin already mentioned, this is uh, a cancer that's in the blood and it's everywhere. So the treatment has always included some sort of chemotherapy. Um, and so uh, looking at the different types of chemotherapy regimens, it seemed like the pediatric approach led to better outcomes and that made ALL mostly curable um, with chemotherapy alone. That being said, uh, the risk determination by the genetics of the ALL, but then also more importantly by its response to therapy and, and what Dr. Luskin talked about with MRD, really drives kind of what, what we do once we start on the standard pediatric-based regimen for AYAs with ALL, you know, is that going to be good enough or do we need to consider more intensive approaches like some of the novel therapies that have been mentioned or um, consolidating a, a um, remission with a bone marrow transplant or allogeneic um, stem cell transplant. There are some different, slight differences between T and B ALL. For the most part, they're treated the same, but in the AYA space, um, there are some new drugs that some doctors will integrate into the backbone of the chemotherapy for T cell ALL. Um, it's still a little early to say that everybody should be doing it, but I would say most ALL folks who are treating acute lymphoblastic leukemia that's of T-cell origin use a, a slightly different regimen than you would for B-cell. But either way, effectively what it amounts to is high-intensity chemotherapy with a prolonged maintenance period. And when I talk to patients about what that actually means from a practical standpoint is usually starting in the hospital for multiple weeks, even up to four weeks in the hospital. But after that first hospitalization, theoretically, if you're being treated with a pediatric regimen, you wouldn't need to be back in the hospital for the remainder of therapy unless a complication happens, which obviously does and is impossible to predict. But that doesn't mean that it's not an intense therapy. It is quite an intense um, therapy that remains intense for up to about nine months, depending on you know, how everything goes. And, then at, and that's coming into clinic you know, from once a week at minimum to up to three times a week and getting chemotherapy pretty frequently as an outpatient. And then after that, there's still other therapy that's called maintenance therapy that really is to maintain that remission and help take the remission that you get with the more intense therapy up front and take that to cure because we don't want this leukemia coming back. So the maintenance therapy is very important too. And it starts immediately after that intensive period is done. And it lasts for a couple years. I say a couple years kind of um, because there's different options, there's different ways if you're male or female, or a lot of different things that can kind of make that duration of therapy slightly different. But really what it looks like is coming into clinic usually about once a month, taking pills at home that are chemotherapy pills, and getting some chemo in the clinic about once a month. During all of this, one of the things that's unique about ALL is that if you don't treat all parts of the body, and that includes the blood with where you get the chemo, 
but that also, also includes the brain and spine. And there's fluid around the brain and spine that our chemotherapy can't get into. And so if you don't actually instill therapy into that area, the leukemia can come back and cause problems down the road. So all ALL protocols include what's called lumbar punctures and intrathecal chemotherapy. So that's basically uh, using a, a needle and getting into the cerebral spinal fluid space in the lower back and then instilling chemotherapy directly into that space, even if you have or do not have leukemia there. And what I tell patients is that it's really just to make sure that the leukemia has no place to hide because we know with experience that if you don't do that, ALL will hide in there and it could come back years later. So ideally, this is all you know, done um, outpatient and after a couple of years, you know, the therapy is done and then you'll have close follow-up with your doctor to make sure the leukemia doesn't come back and to, to deal with any you know, side effects and late effects that can happen from the therapy. As far as you know, what is being updated in AYA ALL and in ALL in general, it's, it's what Dr. Luskin mentioned, is we have these wonderful new targeted therapies that do have their own toxicities. They do have side effects, but the side effects are different than what our chemos are, and it seems like you know, we can use them potentially um, in the earlier phases to minimize side effects, but also to maximize the chance of cure the first time around. So really, the research that has been done in the AYA ALL space has been shown, you know, looking at the pediatric regimens versus adults. Most people nowadays are being are treated with uh, pediatric regimens at least up to the age of 40. Sometimes a little bit older because age really is just a number nowadays. But then the most recent clinical trial updates and research is looking at integrating these novel agents into the upfront therapy to do just what I mentioned before. You know, there are actually is some data out there that shows in adults that maybe we should be integrating some of these medicines already. In AYAs, we're a little bit actually farther behind that, and we're not quite sure how to integrate these medicines, but trying to learn more and more. But even with all of this, you know, there are um, side effects of therapy despite all the best management and all of the gains that have been made over the years. I like to kind of divide them into two different categories. One is just the general chemo side effects. And how I think about that is going back to how chemo works. So chemo is, you know, it sounds like just kind of a general drug that it's not targeted. It's kind of, you know, a big hammer that just hits everything around. But it actually is somewhat targeted. Chemo impacts those cells, which are what our body made up, are, is made up of. All of, our, all of our hair, nails, fingers, everything are made up of these little cells. And chemo attacks those that are dividing and growing. And so it's targeted to those cells that are dividing and growing, which is what cancer is. Cancer are cells that are inappropriately, that are dividing and growing too much. So it does target cancer. But it also targets things that are normally dividing and growing. The best example is your hair. Your hair is almost always growing, and that's why you need haircuts. And so it will cause thinning of the hair, hair loss, things like that, which is kind of the standard of what people think who are going through cancer therapy. But then also our mouth and all the way down to our bottom is lined with cells that are always healing and dividing, and so chemo can infect those. And that's part of the reason why some people get nausea. It's not just that, you know, it also can impact different nausea parts. Um, it can have, cause diarrhea and mouth sores, so that's why it causes those problems. Probably the most important um, uh, thing that's always growing and dividing, though, are our normal blood cells. So ALL are, are cancerous blood cells, but our normal blood cells are always growing and dividing, too. 
some of our blood cells only last in our body for a day or so. So if they're not constantly being made, there's not going to be any of them there. So chemo, unfortunately, attacks the normal blood cells as well. And there are three parts of the blood, the white blood cells, which help protect you against infection. And that's what the cancer is, but also the normal ones are very important too. So you'll be at increased risk for infections. So talking to your doctor about things to do to prevent those are important. Um, but really it's, you know, it's through different times of the, the therapy. And most of the infections when your blood counts are low are from bacteria that live on your body normally. So there's not anything special to do except, you know, wash hands, avoid sick people, kind of take normal precautions that most people are doing nowadays anyways after COVID. Then there are other parts of your blood, the red blood cells, when that's low, it's called anemia. And a lot of people have that for various reasons. And you can get blood transfusions for that to protect your body, your heart, your brain, everything, while your, blood, or while your bone marrow isn't making those normal red blood cells. And finally, platelets are the part of the blood that help your blood clot. And those can be transfused as well. So you can get transfusions for those as well because that helps prevent bleeding or any other issues. And so it is very routine and normal for people to require transfusions of red blood cells and platelets during this time Unfortunately, we just can't transfuse white blood cells. They don't really work. It's just not something we can do. So there's not really a way to get that to happen faster, and it's just about limiting exposures and trying to, um, uh, you know, call if there are problems as far as fevers and other <clears throat> issues from an infection risk standpoint. Then there's kind of some special drugs that are given during ALL therapy. The ones that I see the most side effects from are, are kind of three, steroids, um, a, a chemo called vincristine, and a, a kind of chemo-like um, called asparaginase. Steroids are used, they're a very, very good ALL um, killer. They're a good chemotherapy, and how they're, they're used as chemotherapy in this setting. They're used for a lot of other things too, but they're really good at killing acute lymphoblastic leukemia. But they come with a lot of side effects, long-term side effects like bone death where you need um, actually like a knee or joint replacement, even if you're young, um, bone thinning, which could lead to osteoporosis or um, osteopenia. Um, they can lead to muscle wasting. They can cause problems with blood sugar. They can cause lots of joint pains and aches. So all of these things are, um, for the most part, all of them are reversible. But all of them also, the ones that aren't, though, require monitoring to either prevent or to address if they were to happen. So really the thing to know is just, you know, you got to tell your provider what's going on because there are ways to modify the steroids. There are other medicines we can give to support people who are on it to help with uh, kind of basic things like blood sugar management or even trouble sleeping. They can also cause more anxiety and other type of mental health strain. So just realizing that that could be part of your chemo side effects and making sure your provider knows because there's lots of things that we can do to help with it. The second is vincristine, and that really can damage your nerves, and it can cause a painful neuropathy or numbness and tingling. I tell people that about 90% of the neuropathy that's developed from vincristine gets better eventually. But when we're talking about nerves, that getting better process takes a very, very long time, years sometimes. So really it's important to know kind of where we're at in that nerve damage process. If we're impacting quality of life on a day-to-day -day basis, things like you know, trying to feed yourself or to button up your shirt, simple things like that, 
then we will either hold or modify the dose of the vincristine because we know it will get better at least a little bit eventually, and we don't want to impact people's long-term quality of life. We don't want to harm people for the rest of their lives by carrying a cancer up front. The final one is asparaginase. It can cause just a lot of different problems, and as you age as an adult, it seems to cause more problems. And those could be, you know, worsening nausea or vomiting, which could be serious life-threatening conditions such as pancreatitis. It can cause blood clots. It can cause problems with your uh, cholesterol and lipids. And so really the important thing is just to make sure if you have something weird going on, all of these pediatric-based regimens contain a lot of asparag asparaginase, and it's a very good, important chemo. But if that were, if you were to have kind of different stuff going on, it's just making sure that you don't chalk it up to anything that, um, uh, that is kind of just normal is you at least check with your provider or with your medical team to make sure there's not anything from asparaginase that could be causing these problems. Finally, the, the last thing that I'll, I'll talk about is um, basically you know, how can you best prepare yourself for the, a lot of telehealth and telemedicine, which is what our, our country, you know, rightfully so, and, and it makes life a lot easier, but it's what we're moving towards more, more frequently. And the first thing I tell people is if you can, have the people that you want to be at your appointment in the room with you. It's still easier and more and important that they're there with you just as if you were in a doctor's office. But if they can't, if they're far away, and that's one of the benefits of telemedicine, is try before the appointment to arrange for a link to be sent to them um, from your care team. Make sure, usually, they will have a testing system that you can make sure whatever you're using, whether it be a tablet or a, um, or a um, uh, computer for the visit. I usually recommend tablets or computers for visits because they're larger and they're easier to see and navigate on instead of phones, and lots of problems can happen with phones. If somebody calls you during a visit, it will interrupt the whole visit, so it can just be more difficult. So trying to use a tablet or a computer and making sure it works with the system you're in. Um, you know, making sure you have your questions ready. I tell patients when I first meet them and their first diagnosis just to have a little notepad with you almost everywhere you go because leave it to, you know, right when the doctor leaves or right when your appointment's done, that's when you think of the questions. So if you have a little notepad or, or note app on your phone to just jot down those questions when they come up, that way you can feel like you've had all of the questions answered that is really important to you. And then bring up the side effects. It's what I mentioned before with managing all of these complications and side effects. I don't think it's your job as a patient to know what's important or not. I think you bring up things um, with your doctor that your body's going through. It may just, but you also have to be okay with it because with the doctor saying, well, that's just part of therapy. If it's tolerable, we'll keep watching it. If it's not, we can try something else or modify it. But it might just be that it is what it is, and you have to be okay with that answer, too. We don't have a magic wand to fix everything, but at the same time, I don't think it should be your job to, to triage that and to figure out what's important and what's not. That's why you have a whole medical team, hopefully of nurses and advanced practice practitioners and doctors who can help you navigate that, take off some of that stress from your life. And finally, you know, there are open notes now where, you know, Basically, doctors, uh, you have the ability to access your doctor's notes, and I think that's important and wonderful. I do think, you know, from, uh, from a navigation standpoint, that it's hard to, to read those notes and understand exactly what's going on. And so I, wouldn't, I would say, you know, if you want to look at them, I think it's totally fine. But I do think that, you know, trying to understand everything that's written in there is really not going to be helpful for you. 
Um, it's something that if there are specific things that come up, obviously you should feel free to talk to your medical team. But it's not something that I think that you should uh, do unless it's, um, you know, really, you know, research and things like that, unless it's something that you think is going to be helpful for you. And that goes with labs, too. Is I usually try to tell people to not necessarily trend their labs um, or to do kind of the minimum that they can to make themselves feel comfortable if they are numbers people and that's what they really need to. Um, but I'll stop there um, and appreciate the invite and look forward to any questions that Dr. Luskin and I can answer. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Duval. That was really excellent. Just a wonderful presentation, a lot of wonderful information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and um, I particularly um, was helpful to hear um, all the different treatments that are available again, and also um, just the uh, sense of uh, hope for treatment in terms of ALL. It's really terrific, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Miss um, Carrie Callis, and Miss Callis is is our director of, of director of programs, research grants, Leukemia Research Foundation, and she is representing uh, the Leukemia Research Foundation as a partner organization on today's program. And she will be discussing Leukemia Research Foundation's free programs and services, and will give you information about how to contact them. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Callis. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for that introduction, and hello, everyone. Um, I want to thank Can Cancer Care for hosting this important program to keep everyone updated on ALL treatment advances. Um, I, at this time, I would just like to provide you with a very brief overview about the Leukemia Research Foundation and our patient and family support programs. The Leukemia Research Foundation's mission is to cure leukemia by funding innovative research and to support patients and families. The foundation has raised over $84 million in support of its mission and has funded research grants to over 600 new investigators worldwide to help them advance their research, including research focused on ALL specifically. In addition to research funding, the foundation supports patients and families by providing free programs and resources, including educational programs, disease and treatment information, peer support programs, financial assistance resources, and a directory of other helpful organizations and resources. Our education programs include our annual New and Emerging Treatments Conference and our Leukemia Q&A Conference. We also offer various other virtual educational programs throughout the year on a variety of topics, including coping with the diagnosis, stem cell transplants, clinical trials, and more. Over the past year, we've been adding to and enhancing the leukemia disease information on our website, including the subtypes and other content, including treatments, being newly diagnosed, and more. Our peer support programs include a leukemia online support community and a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program for patients and caregivers through a partnership with Emmerman Angels. Our need-based patient grant program is available to eligible patients in Illinois and our neighboring communities. If you do not reside in those areas, we have a directory of other financial assistance resources. I encourage you to visit our website, leukemiarf.org, to check out these resources and to sign up for our email list so that you can be informed of upcoming programs and topics of interest to leukemia patients and their families. 
Thank you again for this opportunity to share about the foundation, and I'd like to turn it back over to Dr. Messner from Cancer Care. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Callison. That was a wonderful presentation, a wonderful resource for everybody on this program today. And the fact that you fund so much research, that's, that's incredible, and also provide so many uh, support services and programs for people living with um, leukemia. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about uh, Cancer Care Services. Um, now, Cancer Care is a national organization, um, and um, we provide a number of free programs and services, and I'm going to just go over what those are. So first of all, many people call our HOPE line at 800-813-4673 and often speak to one of our oncology social workers. They answer the phones, and so that they will, you call them, usually a person calls with a specific question that they need help with. And then the social worker goes over with them all of the services that we offer. So what are those services? So we do offer support. We do offer practical, financial, and co-payment assistance, which is very important to people. We do assist with issues of transportation and um, financial assistance um, with uh, a number of different issues that people are struggling with. We do help with food insecurity issues. Um, we also do offer online support groups, and we offer online support groups on all the different types of cancers um, because we are we cover all cancers and also all different types of topics. So, for example, we do uh, caregiver support groups, and we do support groups for partners, for um, a, a, adult children, um, uh, for um, you know. Uh, for coping with your uh, cancer. And we also offer them on all the different types of cancers that exist, including, of course, ALL. And those are available. And actually, you can learn more about them by visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. And you'll be able to see all the different online support groups that we offer. People find them incredibly helpful, um, as the support groups are. Um, we also offer these workshops, of course, and we also offer uh, free publications. And um, there are many other services we offer that you can, when you go to our website, you'll be able to see all the programs that we offer. And now uh, we have time for your questions. I'm going to ask Rob to explain to our audience how to queue up for questions. I'm going to take as many of your questions as possible. Rob. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And this is a question from Dr. Luskin. My brother has been diagnosed with ALL, and I know it's going to be a long journey to recovery. Does anyone have any stories to share which can give my brother and family some hope or guidance? Dr. Luskin? Well, um, you know, uh, I think the caller for that question, and uh, it sounds like uh, this caller's brother is at the very beginning stages of the, of the journey, and, you know, what I always advise patients, you know, this is a diagnosis that, um, um, you know, comes very acutely, as, as we say. You know, they go from going getting sick to abnormal blood work to a diagnosis and lots and lots of information happens at a very, very rapid time frame, even compared to some other cancer diagnoses and that is that's a lot and um and it can be a lot of information and uh patients and families are often asked to make decisions really quickly 
Um, so I always uh, remind my patients, I say, you know, I, I have, I've had other, you know, many patients come through my office and sat in this chair or sat in this hospital room, and they couldn't, uh, you know, see their, their way from A to B when they first started. But I promise that you'll get there. You've got to take it one day at a time and, and uh, you know, ask questions, um, and, but, uh, you know, trust in the team that you will get there. Uh, for families and support, I think just helping their loved one uh, remember that that the you know that it is a journey, but that uh, there is a lot of hope, um, and we ha you know and we have a lot of uh, tools to help people, um, and that not to not to bite off everything you know more than you can chew. Take you know one step at a time, you know get through that first treatment, get through that first week, get through that first induction, celebrate that remission, and then move on to the next stage. Um, and uh, they'll be able to look back and say, uh, be proud of what they accomplished, and be able to help future patients. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Duval, do you want to add anything as well? Oh, yes, I'll add to my own comment. I just, you know, I really enjoy seeing my lo my long-term survivors, and I, I make, I, I always tell them I never discharge them from my clinic because I need them to come back once a year and tell me how they're doing so I can use those stories to, to help the, those patients that are in uh, the Collar's Brothers' shoes, uh, that, that they'll be one of those patients one day. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Dr. Duval, do you want to add to that or...? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just add with what I said before, you know, we, the, the chance of cure is, is very high, and although the journey can be arduous, you know, there's no reason not to have hope. I, I call myself an optimistic realist where, you know, we have to realistically talk about what, what is, you know, happening and what is going through, but there's, not, there's no reason to, to not be hopeful and to be positive while going through that. Um, it can be a, a it, well, it can't. I mean, it, it, it is a long journey, um, and it is something that there are going to be times where it's easier than others. Um, but realizing that there will be times that it, that it gets better, I think, is is helpful. And allowing yourself to feel those feels, to, to you know, have the kind of experience the emotions that are normal for people who are going through this is is very important. But making sure that those um, feels and those those emotions aren't leading to suffering, and if they are reaching out to, you know, appropriate mental health providers, whether it be um, for yourself, who's a caregiver, or for, if it's for the patient themselves, making sure that, you know, you don't go through this alone because it's, we expect our, um, we expect people to get help for medical issues, but, you know, mental health issues are medical issues as well. And so you shouldn't expect yourself to, to cope with all the mental health aspects of cancer and its therapy by yourself, just like you wouldn't expect to treat yourself with chemo. Excellent. Thank you. And a question um, from one of our registrants. Um, I'll take a stab at it, and then I'll see if I'll just want to add. I'm about 50 miles away from my oncologist. It is very hard to get to the treatment, treatments and training to drive and cost too much to hire someone to take the what can I do. So I, um, what I would suggest is, first of all, let your healthcare team know, because remember your healthcare team consists of your oncologist, but also consists of uh, uh, um, oncology nurses, oncology uh, social workers, uh, financial navigators, um, patient navigators. And so the institutions sometimes offer support to people in terms of the transportation issue. Also, um, you can contact Cancer Care um, because we also help with financial assistance for some things like this or can make recommendations on other organizations that you can contact. Um, I know the American Cancer Society does offer 
some help with transportation as well. Um, would anyone else like to add to that? Because that is, that is an issue for many people who live so far away from their uh, center. <clears throat> well, this is Dr. Luskin, and I don't know the specifics of the caller situation, but uh, yeah, certainly for ALL, just in general, I made a comment about the specialized nature of the diagnosis and, and wanting to be seen um, in a specialty center. And um, I would say that generally we recognize that many people live um, in areas that are not near uh, a major ALL center. I would say that I would still encourage individuals to try to find a way to come for at least a consultation or um, to at least get that uh, a review of their case by an expert. Um, but many of us um, in different, you know, every region of the country is different, but I collaborate a lot with my colleagues um, in smaller centers in different parts of the Northeast, and we can do a lot for patients with co-management. Um, doesn't always um, allow a patient to never come into the major center, but we do try to reduce that burden of travel by working together. Um, most oncologists and leukemia doctors are, are, are in it to help patients, and we like working together uh, to find that right balance. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. That wonderful collaboration is, it sounds terrific. That's great. Um, and Dr. Duval, do you want to add anything? <clears throat> the only other thing I would add is I agree, you know, collaborate, we all collaborate with um, places that are closer to home, but seeing an ALL doctor is really important because ALL is just a rare disease. The other thing I would say is be willing to accept help from friends and family. Um, that's something that I've noticed is, is just hard, you know, for some people who are very self-reliant and um, and haven't had to rely on other people for the majority of their life. But something like this, this type of medical emergency, which is what it is, it's just a medical emergency that can last for a few years. This is the time to be willing to accept that help and to ask friends and family for it because they might not be realizing that you need it. Um, and, and that's an okay thing to do. And I'm sure the people who are willing to do it would be are, are happy to do so and, and really would like to offer help if they would if you're accepting of it. Thank you. And Ms. Callis, do you want to add anything as well? No, I think all of you covered everything I would have said, so I think you did a great job answering that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So please um for this registrant, please understand that um we are um there are many resources for you. And actually, I should mention to all of you that um, at the end of um, the, well, a couple of days from this program, so today being Friday, it'll probably be that next week, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation. And in that evaluation, there is, um, of course, an evaluation of the program, but we also include any um, information we provided um, about resources for you. And we will certainly include resources on transportation as well and other, other resources, and we'll give you many different organizations to contact regarding transportation or other needs that you might have. So please know that you're not alone and that, indeed, um, we've got a lot of suggestions from um, the program today, but we'll add others as well and organizations that you can contact. And this is a question um, for Dr. Duval. Can a blood test alone definitively tell if someone has ALL or are other tests needed for an accurate diagnosis? <clears throat> Uh, the answer is it depends. You know, we can diagnose ALL just from the blood. Usually um, it requires a bone marrow biopsy, as Dr. Luskin mentioned, because really now that we're getting into um, more advanced therapy, knowing more about the genetics of it, and really all the details about it that we can is important, and that can be done 
on the bone marrow better than it can in the blood. And a lot of the times we want to look for microscopic disease, and we can do that better in the bone marrow than in the blood, but much of the testing that we can do nowadays can be just done from the blood. If you have a lymphoblastic lymphoma, that means that it's not really in your blood as much as it is elsewhere, and that requires other types of tests and other types of monitoring to be able to diagnose and then to monitor response for that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Luskin, does someone have to be at a certain stage for disease for stem cell therapy to be an option, or if so, can you please speak to this? Well, that's, that's a great question. It's a, it's a complicated topic, and um, so you know, I, I, rec I, I mentioned that the role of, uh, of of stem cell transplant and, the, and stem cell transplant and bone marrow transplant are different names for the same procedure. Um, and in this case, we're talking about a transplant where you're um, eradicating the person's blood system and getting a, a donation of stem cells from somebody else. This is called an allogeneic transplant um, as opposed to an autologous transplant where people get their own stem cells back, which is used for a different, some different conditions. But um, often people have maybe had friends or family who have had the other kind of transplant. Um, but in ALL, it's used as a um, used to prevent uh, the leukemia from coming back. Um, in general, this is a, a maneuver that is used when a patient is in remission. So we use various factors to determine um, whether or not the patient's disease is likely to come back. And I mentioned those uh, factors being uh, certain genetic features are considered high risk and the how quickly a patient responds to initial therapy, how deeply they're how deep a remission they get after the first round or two of chemotherapy. We make a recommendation about whether or not transplantation should be offered. The transplant should be given when the patient's in remission, and ideally what's called an MRD negative uh, remission, measurable residual disease negative. The lower the amount of disease going into the transplant, the more likely that transplant is to work. And I always think about it as uh, that transplant gives you a new immune system. That a new immune system, when it goes into the body, is like a baby. It needs some time to get strong, and that, that new immune system that we hope will protect the patient needs time to get strong. Uh, and so the, the, the more advanced, uh, the more help we can give that new baby immune system, the better. We want to give it a head start. If you go into the transplant with, with um, disease, obvious disease in the body, it's really not going to have a chance to succeed. And so our job is to for a patient we think needs a transplant is to, to find a way to use those new drugs we talked about to get somebody into a deep remission and then go to transplant. Excellent. Thank you. And the question for Dr. Duval, do you know what chemotherapy um, medications for people who've had a, a prior cancer can cause ALL later in life? <clears throat> yeah, so we're finding that, I mean, really any chemotherapy um, can theoretically do it. Um, but the risk is very low. There, what we're finding more and more is those who've had previous cancers, such as a specific type of cancer called multiple myeloma, one of the medicines that you, is used in that to maintain remission is, is called lenalidomide or Revlimid. It seems to be more tied to that, and it could be that you know, more people develop treatment-related ALL if they received maintenance therapy with lenalidomide. Um, that being said, it's really it's still a slow, a small risk, and that you know the risk of developing ALL really needs to be weighed with the risk of the, the uh, cancer you're treating that's already there. So it's a really complex thing. Um, you know, there there may be adjustments that are made in the future as we learn more about it, but really, it's not something that 
you are, are your family um, should be um, worried about other than um, knowing that it's a possibility um, and you know if there are questions that come up about it specifically talking to your provider but it's as always a, a weighing of risks and benefits and just one of the risks unfortunately is the development of ALL but obviously there are benefits that can outweigh that risk in certain situations. Excellent. And I'm going to, um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. And I want to thank our participants as well. Um, we've done um, this program before, but the questions today were really fantastic, I have to say. And our speakers' responses and working together to answer your questions was wonderful. So I'm going to ask our speakers to give you a takeaway points from today's program. And I'll start with Dr. Luskin and then uh, Dr. Duval and then Ms. Callis. Dr. Um, yeah. Yeah, my take. My uh, thank you so much. This is really a pleasure to to, to meet with you guys and, and speak to to the list, uh, listeners. Um, ALL is a rare disease. Um, it's a disease uh, that um, you know up, up until recently uh, we were uh, using conventional chemotherapy and hadn't um, seen a lot of progress. Um, what's really exciting is that there is a lot of progress now in ALL. Uh, a lot we can do for patients. Uh, get the get those opinions um, and uh, and uh, look forward to a bright a bright future. Excellent, that's really very wonderful way to. That's a great remarks for a takeaway. Thank you, and uh, Dr. Duval. <clears throat> yeah, I think you know, and to, I um, echo the same sentiments. And really, it's uh, it's a hopeful time period where there's just many many more options for therapy and um, different ways to get rid of this disease for good, to cure this. But importantly, we're also um, looking at more and more ways to be able to, Im to minimize the impact on you know, the rest of your life, the, the um, late effects. And, and there's lots of hope um, that even um, with a need for intensive therapy, the lifelong impacts will become less and less. So, it's um, hopeful that we'll, we'll continue to cure more people of ALL, but also minimize the, the side effects from those cures. Well, that's excellent. That's wonderful to hear. And Ms. Callis. So what I would offer as a takeaway is to just keep attending these types of educational programs so you can stay updated and educate yourself on your options to be an empowered patient. Um, it can be really helpful to hear from physicians that you don't normally get to see on a regular basis and hear their perspectives. So I would say keep attending this. Well, that's wonderful. And that is important to keep, you know, ask your physicians questions. And you ask questions on this program. You hear this information. So you're really up to date with everything. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Callis. And um, I realize that there are still some people in queue, so I want to comment on that because we didn't, don't have enough time to take everyone's question. So for those of you who asked a question or have a question yet to ask or thinking of a question, um, I want you to now go back to your treating healthcare team and please ask your question of them because they know you the best. They have your medical records and they certainly, and you've also learned something today. So we want you to take what you've learned today back to your healthcare team um, and also uh, that will help you feel more confident about asking your questions. And please keep asking your questions until you have the answers that satisfy you so you can then move on and understand what your what options are and how well you're doing as well. Um, and the other thing is uh, we don't want anyone to leave today's program feeling that you're alone. We want you to now feel that you're part of the community of support 
In addition to your healthcare team, there are a lot of resources out there, and again, we'll be sending you um, many resources in the SurveyMonkey um, evaluation, which we'll get early next week. And I guess I just want to really thank you all for your participation today, both our speakers and our participants, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.